Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. I remember when I was in high school, we were doing some missional training, and we were reading through the book of Acts, and we got to this portion uh, where, where uh, the text says that uh, God says to Paul, he says, I have many in this city. And it caused this discussion in my extremely wise high school mind, right, about how God could know who was going to come to be saved in this particular city. And so I worked up the courage during this missional training to ask this question to my youth pastor. I said, well, how is it then that, that, that God can know exactly who would come to be saved in this particular city? He said, well, you have two things at work. You have the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And I interrupted him and said, oh, okay, I get it now. He said, really? You get it. You understand this. As if to say, this is really complex. I said, no, I'm, I'm good. I understand it. In my high school foolishness and embarrassment, not being willing to deal with the complexity of that situation and not realizing how complex the word of God was, I had kind of arrived at an answer that glossed over some of the issues that were really pertinent there. I think when we come to our text this morning in Exodus chapter 9 verses or chapter 9 and verse and chapters 10 um, we can easily kind of gloss over the complexity of this text. We can easily kind of say oh this is this is about God's sovereignty or this is about human responsibility and we might miss that both of those things are kind of happening in conjunction with one another. We can easily kind of understand, okay, God hardens Pharaoh's heart, and that's true. It's been stated time and time again throughout our time in Exodus, but it also is stated that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And so these two things are working simultaneously, although one is causing the other. See, as we dive into this text, I think this is what we're going to see. And here's our our big idea that we're headed toward this morning. God hardens sinners and then exposes spiritual hardness for his glory. That's a hard sentence to swallow, isn't it? That God hardens sinners, he exposes sinners, and he does this all for his glory. He seems like the mean kid on the block, the bully. But as we dig into this text, I think we'll see something different entirely. See not only a God who hardens, but a God who softens. And what he does when one individual, he does something different in a different individual, and he does it all for his glory and for his namesake. Now, here's where we're going to see this. We're going to cover three different plagues this morning. First, we'll see that God exposes Pharaoh's sin through hail in verses 13 through 35 of chapter 9. And then we're going to see that God exposes Pharaoh's foolish pride through locusts in chapters 10, verses 1 through 20. And then in verses 1 through 29 of that same chapter that God exposes Pharaoh's heart in darkness. All of this is kind of culminating to these, um, this point in the 10th plague that's coming up in these next few weeks where God will finally and fully expose Pharaoh's heart. As we've been going through these plagues, we've had this cycle that's been happening. And I'm not sure. There it is. 
Uh, we've had this cycle in the text. There's this formula, right? It says, it starts off, each plague starts off with a statement, the Lord said to Moses, and, and God gives this direction to Moses. This is what I'm going to do. This is what you're to say. And then it follows. And uh, last week we saw that the Lord did so. That was the kind of action terms. This week it's uh, Moses raised his hand or Moses raised his staff. And, and so this action happens, this uh, plague of hail or, or whatever else is going to happen. And then finally, it kind of concludes each cycle with this statement about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart, or God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so there's this cycle. Now, every time we come to these cycles, though, there's these little itty bits of nuance that come out of the text, these differences that show us exactly what the author wants to highlight. And I think today's no different. So if you'll sit patiently with me, we're going to cover plagues 7, 8, and 9, and we're going to just kind of unpack that. And then I want to come back and review and recap all of that and kind of pull out its meaning. And then I want us to talk a little bit more openly about what the Bible says about God's sovereign work and his people. So let's dig in. In Plague 7, God exposes Pharaoh's heart through hail. Starts off with this whole thing. God directs Moses to tell Pharaoh, look at verses 13 through 21 that Jesse had just read for us. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time, I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put my hand and struck, put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into the safe shelter for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then the servants of Pharaoh hurried his, uh, hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses but whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. See, Moses, gets, he's supposed to get up early in the morning again, and he's supposed to go and speak to Pharaoh. And he's saying to Pharaoh, let my people go. But what's different about this is that God makes it personal there in verse 14. He says, for this time, I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people. God sets his sights, as it were, on Pharaoh as an individual, and he's kind of bringing this affliction not to all of Egypt, but he's zeroing it in particularly on Pharaoh and all those connected with him, his servants and his nation, that all of those people will be affected only secondarily as they're connected to Pharaoh himself. Now, fittingly, what happens in our passage this morning is that we get more statements about Pharaoh's heart and the hardness of his heart and his, his dealings with his own sin in these three plagues than we've gotten in any of the six plagues before. The, the author is kind of zeroing in on Pharaoh himself. And God gives us three purposes about why he's doing this in verses 14 through 16. 
The first thing he says is about educating Pharaoh. In verse 14, he says, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. We remember back to those first three plagues. That was God's purpose in in giving the plagues. He said that he was doing so so that Pharaoh might know that he's Yahweh, that he's the self-existing one, that there's no one like him on the earth. And God God says that by now, he could have killed Pharaoh. He could have struck Pharaoh off the face of the earth, but now he's done so, so that he might have this particular purpose of showing Pharaoh who he is, that there's no one like him. The second thing he says is about Pharaoh seeing his power. Verse 16, but for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power. God is showing his overwhelming power to Pharaoh. You might say, how? How is Pharaoh seeing God's power? Well, first it's through these nine miraculous things that are happening. Nile turning to blood and frogs coming from everywhere and gnats and flies and all the disgusting things you can think about. They happen in this book of Exodus. But secondarily, it's also that God is showing his power, not just in these miraculous things that are happening in the nation of Egypt. He's showing his power in that he's hardening the heart of Pharaoh. See, the more obstinate Pharaoh becomes about letting Israel go, the more powerful we see God to be when they're finally released. It's like the more that Pharaoh digs his heels in and said, no, I'm not going to let these people go. I'm not going to compromise. I'm not going to give them away. The more that we see that God is truly powerful when we see this in Exodus chapter 12 and God's people are released. And the third thing that God says, and potentially the most important for our purpose this morning is in verse 16, that God says he's about educating the world. What he says in verse 16, he says it so clearly here. He says, for for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. There it is. The ultimate goal of God's interaction with Pharaoh is that he wants his glory. God is a passionate seeker of his own glory in all things. In fact, if we were to kind of unpack passage after passage this morning, we would find a dedication from God to his glory first and foremost. He says things like this from Isaiah 48. He says, I, my glory I will not give to another. He is dedicated to his glory. He's a jealous God. And so what stands here from this text in verse 16 is that God is using Pharaoh as a megaphone, as it were, right? He is using Pharaoh to pronounce or announce his glory to all the earth. We, we might have thought if we were to read the book of Genesis, how in the world would, would God bless all of the nations through this one individual? How would God take this thing that he's doing with Abraham and make it global? Here it is through the hardening of Pharaoh, through the release of his people. See, the interactions he has in these chapters of Exodus show the world who God is, who Yahweh is, that he's mighty in miracles, that he's powerful in promise, that he's just in his judgment, that he's faithful to his followers, that he's sovereign to save. 
So God is giving this direction to Moses, and now he's going to direct Pharaoh in verses 17 through 19. He says, you are exalting yourself against my people. This will match a phrase we'll hear in chapter 10 about Pharaoh's pride. You are exalting yourself against my people. If God does everything for his glory, when someone self-exalts, God will surely bring humility, won't he? So God promises another plague. It feels kind of like God has this spin wheel, right? Like, let's see what the plague is now, right? This time it's hail. Unprecedented hail. Verse 18 says, such as never has been seen in Egypt. It's report or repeated in verse 24, such has never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. So God is going to send this miraculous hailstorm. What's unique is that in verses 19 through 21 is that there's this warning that goes out. And so for all of those Egyptians who are fearing the word of the Lord, they can go and grab their slaves and they can grab their livestock and they can bring them inside someplace, a barn or inside their house or whatever, so that they can be saved from this coming destruction. Whoever feared the word of the Lord, verse 20, went and did as God directed. And those amongst Pharaoh's servants that kind of had learned their lesson, were listening in on the conversation, went out and grabbed those things and brought them inside so as to save them. But others, amazingly, still hardened against God's word, refused to do so. So in verses 22 through 26, Moses stretches out his hand, right? That's the the phrase that's used there. And the result is destruction and death. Look at verse 25. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. These aren't just animals that are dying. These aren't just plants that are dying. These are slaves that are dying in the field because people didn't listen to the word of God. But notice, too, that God makes a distinction yet again between Egypt and Israel. In verse 26, only in the land of Goshen, that's where the Israelites dwelled, no hail right? No death, no violence, no anything. Where the people of God of Israel were, there was no hail. Verses 27 through 35, Pharaoh again hardens his heart. Here's what's interesting. Look at verse 27 through 28. Um, If I can find it, I've skipped too far ahead, and now I've lost my place. Verse 27, Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, this time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord for for there has been been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go and you shall uh, stay no longer. Moses said to him, as soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. Flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud. But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they were late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants, so that the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. And he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. What's happening here? 
first Pharaoh is hardening his heart yet again. In verses 27 through 28, we see this, this kind of false piety, this false confession from Pharaoh. Look at what he says. He says, I have sinned. The Lord is right. I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail, and I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Notice the pious language that Pharaoh uses. The Lord is right. I and my people are wrong. It seems like Pharaoh's saying all of the right things. He's confessing his sin. He's coming to Moses. He's saying, I need you to plead for me. But when we look a little closer, this confession is immediately interested in something else, not in eradicating his sin, but in avoiding the consequence of his sin. Look at verse 28, plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I'm tired of thunder and hail. I confess my sin, just make the hail go away. It's the definition of what Paul would call later worldly grief or worldly sorrow, right? It's, it's interested in avoiding consequences, but not being made right before the Lord. He wants to traffic in patterns of confession, but never enter into patterns of repentance. And so this is exactly what happens is Moses commits to, to, to pray, and Pharaoh doesn't do it. He doesn't repent. In fact, Moses actually calls him out in verses 30, and 30 through 32. Verse 30, he says, but as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. How does Moses know that? What's interesting that in our text in verses 31 through 32, it's like the, the author suddenly gets interested in the farmer's report. Well, you know, the such and such was in the ear and such and such was in the bud and da, da, da. it's like, what is this doing here? It's a statement that Pharaoh's not interested in actually repenting because when the wheat and emmer come up in verse 32, they're going to be saved. They're going to have enough food. If we can just make the hail go away now, we'll be fine. I just need you to to stop the hail so that everything can be all right again. And so Pharaoh hardens his heart and he doesn't let Israel go in verses 33 through 35. And Moses stretches out his hand in prayer, and the hail ceases, and the rain ceases, and the thunder ceases. But Pharaoh sins yet again, verse 34. Notice what the author says here, what Moses says about him. In verse 34, Pharaoh sinned yet again and hardened his heart. Pharaoh's responsible. He's hardening his heart. Verse 35, the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. That means it was passive, that he was something was happening to him in some degree. And then again in verse 35, just as the Lord had spoken, there's a sovereign God who knew it would happen all along. See how we see all three things kind of smashed together? It's like a, a responsibility soup, right? There's a God who's hardening. There's a Pharaoh who's hardening himself. There's a Pharaoh who was hardened. And all of these things are kind of combining and stirring upon one another. How do we make sense of it? We'll get there. I want to put another plague in front of you here. In verses 1 through 20, God exposes Pharaoh's foolish pride through locusts. We have had gnats, we've had flies, and now we have locusts. Look at chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I've hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, 
and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Let's just pause here for just a second. What's God's purpose in doing these signs and wonders in the land of Egypt? It's so that Moses's subsequent generations, his children and his children's children and his great-grandchildren can tell the stories of God's faithfulness and power to the coming generations. It's not just that God wants to show the nations and use Pharaoh as a a megaphone to declare his glory amongst the nations. It's so that the nation of Israel can pass on these stories of God's power and his overcoming and his salvation. And we go on and we go forward in verse three says, so Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land and they shall eat what is left to you after the hail. And they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field and they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came to the earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's servants said to him, how long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go serve the Lord your God, but which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and our daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, The Lord be with you if I ever let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, Go, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. See, God starts with this purpose for Israel in verses 1 through 2, and then he gives Pharaoh this ultimatum. Let my people go, or you're going to have locusts everywhere. He starts with this confrontation with Pharaoh, and he says, uh, how long will you refuse to humble yourself? How long will you remain obstinate to what this obvious thing is that I'm doing? Once again, it's this change to the formula that highlights uh, the specific nuance of our passage. While Moses typically just says, let my people go, here he confronts Pharaoh's lack of humility. And he gives this ultimatum. He says, if you refuse... These locusts are coming. Verse 5 tells us they're, they're going to eat everything. It's like when your high school kids' friends come over. It's like they descend on your house and they consume everything that you own. And so these locusts are just going to come and destroy whatever was left from the hail. Verses 7 through 11, Pharaoh starts negotiating again. Notice that Pharaoh's servants speak up. For the first time, we hear from someone else around Pharaoh that's not a magician. And they speak up and they say, hey, don't you know that, it, that Egypt is ruined? Like, aren't you seeing this? And so Pharaoh, in this moment of reason, calls Aaron and Moses back in. And he starts negotiating with them, like, who's, who's going to go? And Aaron and Moses are like, we're, we're all going to go. 
going to go with our kids. We're going to go with our grandparents. We're going to go with our flocks. We're, we're all going to go. And Pharaoh just forgets all of that reasonability that he just had. And he says, I'm never letting you go with your kids. That's not going to happen. See, the idea is this. that If Pharaoh can get them to leave their children behind, they'll go for three days and then come back. Or if he can get them to leave their flocks behind, they'll go for three days and then come back. But if he lets all of them go, they're never coming back. So Moses flatly states in verse 9, everybody's going. And what happens in verses 12 through 15 is Moses stretches out his hand. Look at verse 15, what it says. They, that's the locust, ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. And amazingly enough, Pharaoh's heart is still hardened in verses 16 through 20. Again, Pharaoh confesses his sin. Look at, look at what he says here in verse 16. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So we went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Moses hears this confession from Pharaoh. Right? Plead with the Lord, your God, only to remove this death from me. Once again, Pharaoh's negotiating confession to remove consequence. And so Moses prays, the locusts are driven westward into the Red Sea. It's kind of a foreshadowing of what's going to happen to the Egyptians themselves. Well, the upshot is given there in verse 20. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He did not let the people go. Eight plagues, hardened heart. Plague number nine. Look at verses 21 through 29. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward them or toward the heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, go serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain. But Moses said, you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take them uh, to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on that day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. So God directs Moses in that he spreads darkness over the land. Verse 21, there's no warning. There's no statements of direction about what to speak to Pharaoh. There's just this 
command, stretch out your hand so that darkness comes over the land. There's no direction from God to speak to Pharaoh. And this plague might seem like a little bit of a letdown, right? We had these massive things. We had hail that was taking life. We had uh, locusts that were destroying every green thing in the land. And then all of a sudden, it's like God just turns the lights off. Like, what, what's happening here? This is a bit of a letdown, God. Like, you had just uh, escalated and escalated all of these things that, that started off kind of awkwardly. Like, you have to uh, dig in the ground so that you're not taking bloody water from the Nile River to get water. And then uh, kind of frogs and gnats, they're just annoying to eventually the plagues become these like things against pharaoh himself these things that are taking life so what's this the three days of darkness it's like everybody gets a three-day vacation because there's no sun in the land first of all it describes that this is a darkness to be felt it's not that they're sad you know i feel darkness on the inside right it's that these people are groping around in the darkness. It's, it's a darkness that you have to feel your way through. And it, no matter if you try to light a torch or light a candle or whatever else, it's still dark. Amazingly, it's, it says that it, there's no darkness in the land of Goshen. So if you were to stand on the border of Goshen and you were to st- take one step forward, you would be in light. But if you were to take one step backward, you would be in utter darkness. This darkness is miraculous. It says that that these people can't get up out of their beds for three days. You say, what's happening here? What is this? I think as we kind of, this is my interpretation, right? So take it with a grain of salt. But as we kind of cultivate this understanding of what God's doing, he's exposing Pharaoh. The penultimate sign that God is doing is he's showing Pharaoh the status of his own heart. Pharaoh, you can't navigate this. You can't even get out of bed. You can't understand what's happening. You have no understanding. This darkness is like what is inside of your mind. So Moses stretches out his hand. Pharaoh hardens his heart. Again, he seeks this compromise. He said, you know, take your kids, take your grandparents, do whatever you got, but just leave the livestock here. No big deal. And Moses is like, no, we need that for the sacrifice. There's not a hoof that's to be left behind. Everything is coming with us. So Pharaoh hardens his heart. What's interesting here is that he forbids Moses from seeing his face again. Forbids Moses from coming into his presence. It's this ultimate sign of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. He no longer wants to hear anything from God. So you might step away from these plagues and say, what in the world is happening with this? What are these plagues really trying to show us? What should we make of these last three plagues that are, are happening here in verses, or chapters 9 and 10? And we've said that the, the plague formula is predictable. And we've said it's easy to interpret these plagues and their meaning by when we see kind of uh, little differentiations from that formula, right? Well, there's three things that are happening in these stretch of verses that highlight what's going on here. First, Pharaoh is willing to use any means necessary, even confession, to get what he wants. On two separate occasions, Pharaoh is confessing sin in chapter 9, verse 27, and chapter 10, verse 16. And he's also kind of compromising with Moses about the nature of them leaving he asks that they, they leave their children in Egypt. He asks that they leave their livestock in Egypt. 
So Pharaoh is trying to negotiate with this all-powerful sovereign God about his consequence for his hardness of heart. It's the first thing. The second thing is that God continues in hardening Pharaoh's heart. And in fact, time and time again, we see this as at the close of each thing, that, that God is hardening Pharaoh's heart. And this uh, kind of goes on and it still exists. But third, God gives us these bold statements about his purpose in these activities. In chapter 9, 16, he says, But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. See, God's end, his purpose isn't just in Pharaoh. His end and his purpose is in all the nations. And specifically, he tells Moses, he says, you're going to tell your children and your children's children about these activities that I'm doing. You will worship me. In fact, as we kind of go through the rest of the, <clears throat> of the Torah, through the rest of the Pentateuch, we see this phrase that happens all the time. It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you will, and it kind of fills in the blank. This is the impetus for them to do the law. This is the, the drive for them to obey him. God is doing something in the nation of Israel and in the world through hardening Pharaoh. See, the great sign would be remembered throughout all of history. That these plagues that God is doing wouldn't just be a testimony to the nation of Israel. They would be a testimony to all the world about a powerful, sovereign God. It leads us to the conclusion that God hardens for his glory. It's worth noting, and anytime this happens in the scriptures, we should pay attention. When Paul writes in Romans chapter 9, he plucks this very situation out of the Old Testament to prove his point. See, what's been happening in Romans 9 is that he's been arguing that salvation comes through faith and faith alone. That it's not by doing works of the law and being a good person and helping old ladies cross the street that we become good enough for God. What Paul is arguing is he's saying what we need to be saved, what we need to be with God for eternity is saving faith. And just like Abraham was saved through his belief in God, so we also can be saved through our faith. And in this chapter 9, as Paul is making this argument, he brings up the stories of Isaac and Jacob, respectively. And he's saying, Isaac was a person of promise, but his brother Ishmael was not. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. With that in, con in mind, that we pick up the context here in verse 14. It says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Where he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. That's a quote from Exodus chapter 20. It's coming. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I may show my power in you so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That's from our passage, Exodus 9, 16. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. So we just grab that. God has mercy and hardens as he wills. He has mercy on whomever he wills. 
as Paul has said before, so that his sovereign purpose and election might continue, as chapter 9, verse 11 in Romans says. It is God's choice. See, my status with God cannot be contingent upon my effort or my desire or my works. The Bible describes that what I was, what we read in 1 Corinthians 1 this morning, I was blind to the beauty of the cross. And I needed someone to come and pluck me out of my sin and pull me out of my obstinance to God. See, what Paul is saying here is that my salvation is only contingent upon God's sovereign grace. Now, he goes on and he wants to make a second point in verses 19 through 26. Just hang with me for a second. God garners glory from his elective purpose. Look at verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another vessel for dishonorable use? Listen to this. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? He argues in 19 to 21 that we are particularly unqualified to assess the morality of God. None of us, as the pots, get to say to the potter, why did you make me like this? He goes on and he says that he reveals himself, God reveals himself in this purpose of salvation toward his greater glory. He shows his wrath and power to those prepared for destruction in verse 23. Look at what he says. He says, uh, in order to make known the riches of his glory, excuse me, verse 22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Isn't that Pharaoh? Isn't that what God is doing for Pharaoh? For this purpose, I raised you up so that I could show you my power. In Exodus chapter 9. Pharaoh, this is why I raised you up. This is why I cultivated you. I'm going to show the world my power. I'm going to show the world my glory through you. But we might just get kind of, that might just make us cringe a little bit if we don't read what he says in verse 23. In order to make known the riches of his glory for what? For vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for his glory, right? He gave some of us mercy. Not because we deserved it, not because we earned it, not because we were more spiritually sensitive, because we were better people, because we were smarter. It's because God wanted to bestow grace by his sovereign purpose for his eternal glory. That's what he's doing. Right now, as the word goes out into the world about Jesus Christ's righteousness that's provided for free for all who have faith, God is showing himself glorious and majestic as he saves some. It's what he's doing. 
We can get all wrapped up around the axle about this idea of what's it mean to be prepared for destruction? We, we take our eyes off of the glorious thing that God's doing by saving anyone. You know, you walk out onto your street. It's easy as you stand under a street lamp to think that all light comes from the street lamp. Think that the night sky is as pitch black as anything. But if we step away from that street lamp, the stars in the sky shine with beauty and magnificence because they are set up against the black of the night sky. If we don't see men and women who become objects of wrath, we'll never see the stars of God's grace. Never understand it. Here's the truth. If, if God says he's wrathful but never shows wrath, he's a liar. God says he, says he's just and never shows justice. He's not moral. His words are hard for us to swallow, but they're true. What God is doing in our midst right now is he's providing a rich and glorious salvation. You know, in the Old Testament and throughout the Bible, this metaphor of darkness is used time and time again. From this point forward, we see this idea of darkness used throughout the scriptures to, to define what it is to be spiritually bankrupt. John chapter 3, men love darkness rather than light. Ephesians chapter 4, those people who were Gentiles apart from Christ, they are darkened in their understanding. First John chapter 2, whoever hates his brother walks in darkness. God has spoken of darkness as, as judgment. In Matthew chapter 8, he says that someone will be thrown into the outer darkness. Isaiah chapter 9, people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Worth noting, isn't it, that when Jesus dies, there's darkness for three hours? Matthew 27. Paul grabs this in 2 Corinthians 5, and he says, the God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving so they might not see the light, the gospel of the glory of Christ. God who said, let there be light, has shown his light into our hearts so that we might understand the glory of Jesus. It's like the veil has just been taken off, that the scales have fallen from our eyes so that we can see Jesus for the first time. That's what God is doing through his eternal glory and praise. So here's our message. You say, what does this matter for a Monday? How does this push me at all through what happens tomorrow as I go through the struggles of my workplace? Well, here's, here's how I think this applies to us. Beware a confessing heart that never becomes repentant. Beware a confessing heart that never pushes into repentance, a, a heart that says all the right things in all the spiritual context, that, like Pharaoh comes and says, forgive me, I've sinned, forgive me, I've sinned, forgive me, I've sinned, but never changes a thing. See, Pharaoh leads a life that feigns confession to get relief 
It never addresses the, the real of problem is his disobedience to a righteous and holy God. Pharaoh's confessing sin to change his circumstance, but not his heart. And listen, in the 21st century today, it's so easy for you to feign this kind of form of Christianity that just wants to confess, that wants to own up to these things, but never actually changes anything. Our sinful hearts will use anything to retain its self-sovereignty, its self-direction. It puts itself on the throne. It kicks Jesus off. Do whatever it takes not to bow down to this holy God. Notably, it will even use religious machinery such as praying and confessing and reading, but it never changes. See, the authenticating life or mark of the life in, excuse me, the authenticating mark of the believer is life change. We see this all the time. Hebrews chapter 10, for a single offering has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. John 13, 35, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Romans chapter 8, verse 13, if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live, right? Time and time again, the scripture is saying, hey, when you change, that's how you know you've changed. It sounded like the stupidest sentence ever stated. It's true, right? How do I know I'm something different? It's when I live differently, when the fruits of the Spirit are just coming out. People come to me all the time, say, how do you know if you're chosen? How do you know if you're not the one that's hardened? You're not this object prepared for wrath. How do you know you're an object of mercy? And the best answer I can give to you is that you experience this change that happens. The drives, the things that used to control you, the things you wanted, somehow are put in the back seat, in the trunk. And the thing that takes the driving wheel, the thing that takes over, is this impulse to please the Lord. Maybe not all the time, but we should find it increasing as we live our life, right? The truth is we should investigate our life. What is one place, the question I pose to you, what is one place where God has legitimately changed you? It might be worthwhile to sit down with a friend over lunch or over coffee, someone who knows you well, a loved one, say, how has my relationship with Christ changed me? Can you see anything? upshot of this is that we wouldn't be content to rest on some decision we made years ago when we threw our stick in the fire, when we walked the aisle, when we sat down with mom and dad on the corner of the bed and we prayed the prayer. The truth is, if God is working in you, he should always be working in you, shouldn't he? You should find increasing patterns of repentance and holiness. doesn't mean you're always going to do everything perfect. And you're going to fail, and you're going to feel guilty, and you're going to confess, and you're going to repent. I say that because I'm concerned. I'm concerned not for our church body, but just for the larger culture here. We have this pattern of 
trafficking in spiritual things, but never taking them seriously. It's like the kind of uh, the inner circle. That's how you get into the inner circle. You be pseudo-religious. You do good things, but you never do too many good things. You don't become too much of a crazy person about your religious belief. I think that if it's true that we are objects of mercy, that it's all defining for us. If we are those who are gifted and graced by God to, to receive mercy in Christ, it should be all defining, shouldn't it? I want to pray to that end. I want to pray that the Lord makes us people who are so infatuated with his grace and his goodness that we didn't deserve, that we didn't earn, that nothing we did nothing to perform our reception of it. That we might be those people who also live it out in particular ways to his honor and glory. Would you pray with me, Lord? We ask now that you would do that, that you would work in us to show yourself in us. Lord, as those who have received mercy, you might make us merciful. As those who have received kindness, we might be kind. As those who have been redeemed, we might act like those who are redeemed. And all the while show that you are our only hope in life and in death. Lord, I pray that you would help us to navigate the commands that you give us time and time again, that you show us, that you would help us to trust and delight in you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.